Middle Eastern money is coming into the major U.S. sports leagues for the first time, and we're also taking a deep dive into college football conference realignment. It's Monday, June 26th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. On Thursday, reports started coming out that the Qatari Investment Authority, which is that country's sovereign wealth fund, is investing in monumental sports and entertainment, which owns the Washington Capitals, Wizards, and Mystics, as well as Capital One Arena, the Monumental Sports Network, and some esports teams. Joining me now to break this down is Front Office Sports Newsletter co-author Eric Fisher. Welcome, Eric. Hello. Great to have you. So, you know, this is just one fund investing, taking a minority stake in one company, Monumental Sports and Entertainment. What's the big deal here? Why is this news? Well, on two fronts here, let's take it from the uh, Ted Leonsis and uh, American League side of this. There are a couple of issues at play there where um, particularly the NBA and the NHL uh, over the last couple of years have been increasingly receptive to institutional money uh, to help with rising franchise values. This is another uh, toe in the water on that front. And in particular, this is also testing uh, whether or not a uh, sovereign wealth fund, this is the first of its kind, as you uh, correctly indicated in the intro, uh, whether this particular form of institutional money will work in an American team sports context. So there's a lot of experimentation here on the monumental side. On the Qatari side, this is very much the same sort of thing that they've been doing through the World Cup and a number of other endeavors in terms of using sports to help raise and and, uh, improve their overall national image. Right. Yeah. And both of those sides are are worth diving into a little further. So, right. We've seen over the last few years, NBA, NHL, MLB, MLS, NWSL, all of them opening their doors to private equity money. And so we've seen groups like Arcto Sports Group and, uh, and Redbird Capital, for instance, um, buying stakes of teams. And, you know, they're pretty restricted in what they can buy. It's usually you know, something like 5 to 10%, and they can only own, they can own multiple stakes in multiple teams, which is kind of a new thing. Um, but, you know, it's all limited. It's an investment opportunity. Kind of the same thing for a sovereign wealth fund, but it does have a different feel to it because of that other side of, this isn't just, you know, a, an equity firm sees a good investment opportunity. This is a sovereign wealth fund sees a good investment opportunity, but also an opportunity to associate Cutter with things like sports and the World Cup and the Washington Capitals instead of, you know, their sort of checkered human rights record. Yeah, there, there again. There's a, there's a lot of things at play here, but the interesting play thing is where this all really started a couple three years back is that we've got these record valuations for sports teams now. The Commanders going for six billion dollars. We've got an eight billion dollar uh, deal at play here for the collection of Toronto teams and arenas up there. Uh, we've had a four and a half billion dollar deal for the Denver Broncos. The list goes on and on. And even in an age of increasing wealth among the you know, uber wealthy, uh, you know some of these numbers are just hard to reach. And just having that money, particularly in the case of the NFL, but even with some of the other leagues with the upfront equity requirements, that um, this is where all this all started is bringing in these other sources of capital to meet where the franchise values are going and continue to go. And one thing that strikes me just talking to you now is that this isn't just the NBA bringing in the Qatari Southern Wealth Fund or the NHL. It's both at the same time through an umbrella company. 
And so there isn't this moment of debate, at least not that I'm hearing around, should this be happening? What does it mean for the league? Maybe that's happening somewhere. Maybe that debate already happened when they said, you know, sovereign wealth fund money is now allowed. But it, it kind of feels like this is just sort of slipping in. And now, you know, who is the NHL or the NBA or, you know, probably eventually MLB to say, uh, to say no to, say, the uh, Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund, which is, you know, the the even bigger sovereign wealth fund in the Middle East that is also pouring billions and dollars of dollars into sports. Yeah, and it's important to note here that this is Ted Leontis we're talking about here, a very known and successful quantity in pro sports. This is somebody with going on a literally a quarter century now, going back to his original Caps days uh, of ownership in, in big four sports leagues. He's been on uh, major league committees. Uh, the commissioners all know and like him. His son, Zach, is a rising star in the industry as well. Uh, this is not some new owner. This is not some rogue figure. This is somebody who all the leagues know and trust and have for quite some time. And as we discussed not too long ago, someone who could also be buying the Washington Nationals at some point. Correct. And so that and so then sovereign wealth fund money could come into MLB kind of through this back door of it's already in monumental sports and entertainment. (laughs) And that group is now buying the Nationals. A lot of dominoes still have to fall for that to happen. But that seems like a reasonably likely thing that could happen. Theoretically possible. Sure. Very interesting stuff. Eric Fisher, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Always a pleasure. Up next, the college football season is on the horizon, but that landscape is changing in big ways that will have long-term implications. I spoke with CBS Sports HQ analyst Barrett Salee on what that all means. We will have that conversation next. All right. I'm joined now by Barrett Salee, CBSSports.com writer, analyst at CBS Sports HQ and Sirius XM host. Welcome, Barrett. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we've seen some pretty substantial conference realignment still kind of playing out in terms of like when teams are actually shifting conferences. But has the dust settled for now on teams moving or are we still going to see some headlines about this? We're going to see a lot of movement um, right now, you know, since the Pac-12 media rights deal is sort of all over the place. We've seen Apple. We've seen that kind of go away. We've seen the CW. We've seen that kind of go. All, it, it, the Pac-12's a big time mess right now, due in large part to Larry Scott, the former commissioner, who really sent this whole thing into a, a spiral 10 years ago. So with the Pac-12, um, you know, still sort of figuring out what its future is post-USC UCLA, uh, I think that has opened the door for other conferences to go go fishing, so to speak. And I think the Big 12, <clears throat> with what it's done, you know, losing Texas and Oklahoma, but adding UCF, BYU, Houston, and, uh, uh, and, and Cincinnati is clearly in attack mode, right? And so I think for, for the Big 12, the ability to become a national brand, you know, having, you know, UCF down in Florida – and potentially go all the way across the country to maybe Oregon or Washington, that's a big product. That's a really good product. So I think if the Pac-12 media rights deals fall apart or if they just aren't very attractive to some schools that might be willing to leave or want to leave, that the Big 12 might start making some moves. And if that happens, it's another domino, right? We've sort of had you know all these dominoes sort of fall already after Texas and Oklahoma. You've seen 
you know, Jacksonville State move up and Sam Houston and, you know, Southern Miss move around, you know, all that stuff. Um, but it's calmed down for now. I think if if the Big 12 starts poaching Pac-12 teams, then you're going to see the Pac-12 make some moves. You're going to see the Mountain West probably make some moves because some of their teams are going to go away. So um, we're not done. We're not done yet. Uh, and we kind of saw this last go around, you know, when, when uh, Texas A&M and, and Missouri came to the SEC, you just started seeing some dominoes fall, Maryland left, Rutgers went to the, you know, all that stuff. It, it took some time. Um, I think we're going to have more time <laughs> this go around, but I think certainly all, it all hinges on the Pac-12's media rights negotiations, which are not going very, very well at the moment. Yeah. And so, I mean, you're getting into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is that, you know, obviously these conferences were initially oriented around geography that almost doesn't seem to matter anymore. Now it's about your size, your media pull. And so does geography matter at all anymore? Or is it really just like, where's the money? Mostly where's the money? I mean, obviously, the, it doesn't matter to the Big Ten at all. It does vary. Um, I think it does matter to the ACC, at least for now, partly because they're locked into their deal. Uh, for the SEC, it, I guess it matters a little bit because that's just traditionally you want Southern football to be Southern football. And partly because there's nobody else out there worth getting, right? If you're the SEC, why do you go add an average to a slightly above average team program if it doesn't help you? So, um you know, but teams like the Big 12 or the Pac-12, the conferences like the Big 12 or Pac-12, yeah, that it matters. Uh, I do think you're sort of seeing a situation where there are no good options. I think that's part of it, too. Um, like I said, if the if the Pac-12 crumbles and you're going to see some suitors for those teams because they do want to be national brands. But outside of the group, like the core group of Power 5 teams that exist right now, there's really no one else to go add that really makes that splash, right? Like if you go get San Diego State, if you're the Pac-12, okay, that makes sense. It's on your side of the of the country. But, you know, there's there's nothing really, you know, important about it. It doesn't bring you eyeballs. Um, so I think right now geography is sort of the foundation of how college athletics have been built for, what, 150 years. And it's still going to be part of it. Um, but it's mostly about money. Um, but like I said, I think, Money is, it's probably most, it's probably all about money, but it's all about money in the sense that there are only few other options out there. So, you know, if, if the SEC wants to go get even Oregon and Washington, which might be two huge fish, is that even worth it to go across the country and get those two teams? Probably not. And you, you use the word crumble around the Pac-12 as a potential thing that could happen. Are any conferences facing the risk of entering some kind of death spiral where they, you know, don't have enough schools and those remaining schools leave and then the conference just ceases to exist. Is that possible for any conference right now? I think it's possible for maybe the mountain West, uh, although I doubt it. I mean, I guess if we're, if we're creating pie in the sky scenarios, right, let's just say uh, the, the PAC 12 loses the two Arizona schools or Colorado, Utah, whatever. And then Oregon and Washington, right? That could send the Mountain West, could mean the Mountain West just gives all of their teams to the Pac-12. And then what happens to the Mountain West, right? Do you combine with the Sun Belt? I don't know the answer to that. So I think it does sort of hinge on what happens with the Pac-12. How many teams do they lose? Which teams do they gain? Where do they gain them from? And if they basically just pillage the Mountain West, 
you might see, I wouldn't necessarily see them disappear, but you might see more of an organized effort to sort of combine group of five conferences, whether it's in, you know, like divisions like the Mountain West Division and the Sun Belt Division and kind of make a bigger sort of all-encompassing conference in, in that regard. I don't, I don't know how you do that. Um, is there a possible, is it a possibility that one goes away? Yeah. Um, I would say it's a possibility to be a group of five uh, conference, but I, I still think there would be remnants of it. It would just be, it'd be, you know, sort of built in a different way. And the other structural potential big change I wanted to ask you about is there's some chatter around the power five, maybe just breaking off from the NCAA. Is that actually in the card somewhere? It's kind of already happened, right? Like I, I think that, the financial disparity between the power five and group of five is just so big. And I think that's, um, that's becoming apparent. It's only going to grow. I think though, because in the playoff, you've had Cincinnati go, the expanded playoffs going to allow, I think a little more access to some group of five teams, but they still don't have those TV deals. They still don't have the distribution that the, the main group of uh, the main conferences have. So, you know, if we're talking about there being a lack of, of, you know, sort of suitors for the Pac-12. What does that mean for the rest of them? It means that there's still not any suitors for them either. So the money is just going to continue. The gap's going to get continue to get bigger and bigger. So, you know, we sort of already have that now. Breaking off, I just, I don't see, I just don't see what that would accomplish at this point because they basically already have. So I guess it's a possibility, but, you know, money drives everything. And right now the money has sort of divided them on its own, whether it was intentional or not. So I, I always thought there would be a chance of that. But right now, I, I, the last couple of years have kind of told me that it already, it already has happened. It's just not like an official moniker because power five group of five is not really official. Um, it's just sort of how we, how we group them and group them and how the actual college football playoff views them. It's not an NCAA thing. So I don't really see the point of that anymore. I want to hop topics a bit here, though, staying in sort of the NCAA governance. Uh, so recently, so we had Brad Bohannon, the Alabama baseball coach, was fired for uh, some unethical activity around gambling. Iowa State says they're looking into around 15 student athletes somehow involved in gambling, whether that's, you know, they just have a DraftKings account and maybe they're violating NCAA rules uh, through that. University of Iowa is investigating more than 100 people, including 26 current athletes, for something similar. How big a problem is gambling for the NCAA? Well, based on its current rules, it's big because you can't do it, right? I'm, I remember way back when, 20 years ago, Teddy Dupay, former Florida player, had an issue like this. And Rick Neuheisel, my colleague at Sirius XM, lost his job because of a, a basketball pool, a March Madness pool. So I, I think those kind of archaic rules still exist in the NCAA. So you know, same thing we saw at the NFL level. Jamison Williams got, you know, suspended because he made a bet on a different sport from within the football facility. That doesn't, you know, I think it, the rules ha in these sports just haven't caught up to the reality of how people live their lives and how fans, both athletes and non-athletes, enjoy sports. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a problem in the sense that if you're going to tell people they can't place a, a baseball bet or, you know, use DraftKings or prize picks or whatever, that's that's a little ridiculous. And so um, I think that needs to be changed. It needs to be addressed. I think it'll be addressed relatively quickly because um, money drives everything. And a lot of the reason 
people watch sports is for for gambling. Um, now a little bit more, you know, legally, and it's out front a little bit more than it has been in the past. I think the one thing that was just ridiculous about um, that story that popped up uh, with Alabama and Brad Bohannon was, you know, a lot of folks were saying, "Oh, gambling's just destroying college athletics, and you can't legalize it because you know you're going to get coaches and players throwing games." And I like to step back, like, look, no, legalized gambling actually stopped it from happening. Like, we wouldn't know about this had it not been for you know, legalized gambling and casinos and sports books looking out for their bottom line. So um, I think in that respect, it's healthy because if if you are trying to prevent coaches and players from throwing games and fixing games, how do you do it? Well, the NCAA can't really investigate it. That's just it's impossible to discover that stuff. But sports books don't care about NCAA rules. They care about their bottom line. And in the case of Alabama baseball, that's exactly why it was discovered. So I think from that aspect of it, it's okay. I think from from a rules perspective, I think the NCAA needs to sort of, I would say, get into this new era uh, quickly and realize how important it is for gambling to be involved in college athletics. Of course, you don't want your players betting on their own games. I mean, I, I get it. I, and in, in some cases, that's illegal too, right? Because, you know, if I know, if I'm a quarterback for Iowa and I know that, the Nebraska quarterback is really more hurt than he actually is. And I place a bet on Nebraska's opponent. Like that's illegal, you know? So I think that part of it should be addressed, but you know, betting on horse racing or whatever, I I just don't see why that's a problem. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like probably the, where this is eventually going to get to is you can bet on other sports. You can't, you can't bet on your own league. Um, Like there has to be some line because the moment, even if you're betting on yourself, like that might change how you play the game. And like, I I feel like that crosses some kind of line, but we also live in this world where it's like everywhere you look, there's a sports betting ad saying like, you can just do it on your phone, download it right now. We'll give you 200 bucks just to get started. Um, And so then to say, but if you're a college football player, you're of age where it's legal, you're in a state where it's legal and you want to bet on a hockey game. No, you can't do that. And you'll get suspended. You'll lose your whole livelihood if you do potentially Uh, that that just seems like we're we're a little out of whack there. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, you know, I I never saw an issue with with what, you know, look, look, again, if you're Pete Rose and you're betting on your own games, even if you're betting for your team, that's not cool. Like you can't do that. Yeah, right. Because because, yeah, you want him to be managing to win the game, to have the best season he can, maybe to develop players if they're not not having a great season, not to, well, I got, you know, got to beat the spread. You know, we, we got to like push this last run through. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think I, I think it's sort of clear enough what the issues are. I think it's just a matter of like making sure you can you can monitor it to a degree where you say like, yes, you can have your DraftKings account, you can have your FanDuel account no, you can't bet on these sports. Like maybe you have to register as an, a professional athlete. I think these are solvable problems, but there just has to be like everyone paddling in the same direction here. All right, Barrett Lee, thanks so much for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. I am going on vacation, but this podcast is not. You'll get to hear some new voices over the next week while I visit some family on the East Coast. Subscribe so you don't miss a thing, including an NFL legend later in the week. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.